This is episode number 161 with Jody Fox of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name's Nathan Chan and I am the host of this show and also the CEO and founder of Founder Magazine. I hope you're all having a fantastic day. Wherever you are around the world, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. And today we have an awesome guest. Uh, her name is Jodie Fox and she's the co-founder of a company called Shoes of Prey. And this was a really, really great conversation because she shares with me everything you need to know about manufacturing and producing a physical product, but also doing that at scale and building a very, very large business. We also talk about uh, also relocating your team to a whole nother country, which was very, very interesting. Uh, so she was based out of Sydney and uh, decided to pick up and move the whole office, uh, whole HQ to LA, which is something I don't know if I could ever do here in Melbourne. I just love Melbourne too much. But no, fantastic story, really inspiring. And uh, yeah, a lot of lessons learned around manufacturing, building physical products, growing brands. And also she's done some incredible business development deals with uh, David Jones and Nordstrom and uh, now looking to go into some B2B stuff as well. So really, really strong strategy here with this business model. I'm, I find it really fascinating. So that's it from me. Before we jump in the show, I just wanted to say, uh, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. And uh, just leave a review on, you know, if you're on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud. It just really, really helps. And also make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All right, that's it from me, guys. Now let's jump into the show. The first question that I ask uh, everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? my job today. I gave it to myself because it's not a job that really exists. So um, 
I guess with the history of where I was culminated in an idea. And I think a founder's job when you start a, a business is just to do everything that you haven't hired anyone to do just yet. Um, so I got my job sitting what was I doing? Okay. So I'll tell you what, I actually couldn't find shoes that I really loved. I'm half Italian. I've spent a bunch of time in Italy with my tias and nonna and mum looking at great shoes. Um, I just, I just couldn't find what I loved. And I heard about a cobbler in Hong Kong and I happened to be traveling to Europe for a holiday with one of my girlfriends and I had to stop over in Hong Kong. So I made sure my stopover was long enough. It was six hours. And I dashed off the plane, went to this shoe shop and I walked in and it just looked like a regular shoe shop and I was a bit disappointed. So I said to one of the sales staff, I was like, oh, hi, um, I, I just wanted to design some shoes. And they were like, oh, sure. And brought out all of these swatches and, you know, sketch pads. And I was in heaven. And in an hour and a half, I designed 14 pairs of shoes wow. at the time of my life. So yeah, it was really fun. And um, I had the shoes delivered back to Australia and they turned up at my work and uh, the women in my office went, oh my God, what, what is this? Where did they come from? And when I explained, they started asking me, oh, okay, well, actually, you know, I had this pair of shoes that I loved and I, they don't make them anymore. Could you make them for me? Or, um, you know, I'm a size 10 wide and it's really hard to find you know, shoes that I love. Could you make a pair for me? This is a style I've been thinking about. And just out of the woodwork came all these, you know, women who couldn't find what they wanted. So I did that. And, um, I have to say it wasn't my idea to turn it into a business. My two co-founders, Mike Knapp and Michael Fox, um, were both at Google at that point in time. So Michael Fox had been with Super Cheap Auto and he went through their very first, he was their first graduate to go through a graduate program there. So he'd got this deep understanding of retail um, and seen across all of their operations. And Mike Knapp had at that stage become a software engineer at Google. And they were really excited about e-commerce. They're like, this is amazing. It's going to take off. Very excited about it. Don't have an idea. <laughs> and so the idea became design your own shoes online. And we kind of put all the pieces together when we were hanging out in the summer of 2008 on the beach at the Gold Coast. So, um, you know, that, that kind of became the idea. And then we started just biting off little bits and pieces, thinking about how does that work? What would we call it? Um, are there other people doing it? How how big is the women's shoe market anyway? And honestly, it was it wasn't a defined process. It was just asking questions and figuring little bits and pieces out. So, I guess in the process of that, I got my job. <laughs> <laughs> you like that question, hey? I know. I was like, how did I get my job? I was like, oh my goodness, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> and that job has evolved over time. I mean, I'm I'm doing I've done so many different things in the course of the business um and I've always been now kind of chief creative officer a creative director but today um more so than ever that is true to what a real creative director does which is so 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 exciting yeah awesome so um so you come you conceptualized the idea in 2008 did you launch uh, like an mvp version of the site how did you get early stage traction talk to me about that how that all came about Cool. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we tested it on our friends. Friends were always good guinea pigs. So we, we kind of built an idea of the website, but we didn't make it with bells and whistles or anything like that. We just made it so that you could create a picture of a shoe. Um, it was built in flash um, the first version. So you could create a picture of the shoe and click buy. I 
designed some shoes and we took some photos of those so you could see what the real shoes were going to be like. And then we showed that to, I think, about 50 women um, that were friends between the three of us or friends of theirs as well because we kind of needed to make sure that people didn't feel like they just needed to say nice things. We wanted, like, real critical feedback as well. And we showed them and we gave them very, very, very discounted shoes um, so that they would go through the process and give us feedback. And so that, that I guess, was kind of the MVP. Um, but the thing about Shoes of Prey is that it, while it was, like, quite tech-intensive in- to build and certainly the operations needed a lot of thinking, it was, it's a very cash flow positive business model. So launching didn't have some of the... Um, traditional risks that an e-commerce or particularly a fashion website might otherwise have. And when I say cash flow positive, I mean, when we started, we were working with suppliers. So you would tell us, you would give us the order and pay for it in full. And then we would go and get it made by the supplier, ship it to you. And normally our bills wouldn't fall due till after that. So we, the cash flow positivity of that model was really fantastic for starting and testing a business. Yeah, I see. So when you launched the first version of the site, um, how did you get your first uh, 100 customers? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember our first customer, it was like a 30 email chain <laughs> with them answering any little question and offering anything we could just to <laughs> Close. get that first stranger over the line. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, look, we, the first thing that we did, again, was go to the people that we knew. So we sent an email out to all of our friends, posted it on Facebook as well, and we, we included a, um, a link in there that had an offer for um, – like a, a discount on the shoes, uh, and we put tracking code on it <laughs> so that we could see how far it went. And we sent it out literally to everyone in our lists. And I think that ended up hitting like 10,000 people, which was over over a period of time. But still, that was sort of our first driver of customers. That being said, our first major traffic hit probably happened about five months in. So the first five months, we had about 200,000 unique visitors, which isn't too bad for something that's completely new. But we uh, worked with a YouTube blogger and it was before brands were really working with YouTube bloggers. So it was actually one of my co-founders, Mike Knapp's idea. And we we ended up approaching this girl who, um, her name's Juicy Star 07, of course. And um, she was a beauty blogger and she would explain how to create different looks. And she'd started doing haul videos and a little bit of styling and stuff like that. So um, wrote to her and we're like, hey, you know, go to school cool shoe company design your own shoes are you interested and then her Hollywood agent wrote back which was amazing but you know that was such a new thing and it was mind-blowing for a blogger to have a Hollywood agent so she wrote back and we ended up negotiating a deal that at that time was really not expensive at all um obviously that that market has picked up significantly and is a very different story now um but she did a video for us it was 10 minutes long and she explained how she designed the shoes you know she's excited about it and and then at the end, we said, um, what, go and design a pair of shoes, put the link to the shoes here and a comment on where you would wear them to, um, and we'll make the prizes, the two best shoes, we'll make them and send them to you. You know, I was a bit dubious about it because I'm pretty lazy when it comes to entering competitions. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, I know you want my email address. Why don't I just give you that? Let's let's forget about the 25 words, you know. <laughs> it made me worth it. Anyway, um, so I was a bit dubious about it. And um, it went live. The day it went live, we had half a million people hit the website. 
which is just phenomenal. Um, we had 90,000 people enter the competition. Oh, wow. um, like, it was the most commented video on YouTube that day. And I think it's still number three for the how to and style section of YouTube, which is pretty cool. Um, so it went pretty far, but, um, the interesting thing was that we made a bit of an error in our hypothesis, which was traffic equals sales. Um, <laughs> so we had all this traffic coming in, but the sales graph was still pretty flat and we're like, okay, what's going on? And, um, we just completely messed up the target, um, audience, you know, like the, the people watching, you know, a young girl put makeup on on YouTube don't generally have $220 in their back pocket to spend on shoes. They're, you know, 13 year old girls who are looking to buy a lip balm. So, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we'd missed the audience. Um, so we decided to write a story about it and we posted the case study and the wall street journal got in contact, which was amazing and wrote a feature story on it. And that's when the story reached our actual target audience. And the ultimate effect of that was that it permanently tripled the business. Um, so that was really cool. You know, it was kind of a lesson in looking for funnels that don't have a big media buy attached to them in clever places, but also a lesson in how we should have targeted it had we thought about it a little more closely at the beginning. That being said, it's, it's not a lesson to say, go to YouTube, find a blogger and <laughs> work with them because the market's super different now. So I think in those days, um, and I sound ancient when I say that, but in those days, um, there were these very big YouTubers who had audiences, but now they're quite fragmented and there's something to more of the micro-influencer strategy where you work with several people with small audiences who don't have those really enormous fee asks and things like that. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So do you guys still do much influencer marketing? Yeah, we do. I mean, we've sort of dipped in and out of it for a long time, but we're really committed to it at the moment. And we're testing it again in a different way. So, and we're sort of looking towards that sort of greater spread of not necessarily really big, but really great quality influencers that we're working with. So, um, TBC, maybe if we can talk again in a couple of months, I'll, um, I can let you know how that works. Um, but at the moment, who knows, may fall flat on our face, may go well, not sure. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. So when you, when you first launched, um, how did you set up the logistics behind you design the shoe on the site and then that order, does it, did it go to the person that you, you know, design the 13 shoes in Hong Kong? Like, how did you work that part out? That was pretty tough. And, um, the, yeah, it's it sort of it culminated in the end in us building our own factory. But obviously there's a lot of steps that happen between selling a pair of shoes and, and getting enough cash together to build a factory. So should probably start at the beginning. <laughs> uh, I guess – so we did, we went to, we went over um, to talk to the person that I used to get these shoes made from. And then we found there were quite a few people that did it. And so I remember we got, you know, I got dressed in my just casual clothes and pretended to be a shopper and all that sort of stuff and had a look at the goods and talk to them and let them take me through the process. And then we kind of picked the best few that we liked and went back the next day in suits with cards and computers and <laughs> set up meetings with them. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was kind of, it was interesting. So we talked to them about our idea and what we were thinking of doing. And the, the one, one factor that might differ today that was different then was that the global financial crisis just happened. And I suspect in the background that there was a bit of, um, drop off in terms of the mass production orders that a lot of those people were getting. So they're probably willing to entertain something a little bit different. I'm not sure today how 
you know, if that would be, would provide much of a difference to us. But, um, you know, we just had to believe in it and go for it. It's a tough pitch to pitch mass production that you'd like to make lots of pair of shoes, but one at a time because MOQs are so important to the good running and survival of a factory. Um, they run on pretty small margins, so they're looking for um, high volumes to make it all worthwhile. So, yeah, it would probably be a slightly different pitch today if we were to go back and do that. Um, so once we got sort of some general buy-in from a couple of suppliers, we then went and spent time with them. And we had ideas about how the process would work from the website side. But between Mike, Michael and I, what you, what you might notice is that not one of the three of us come from a shoe background. So we had to learn about how to make a pair of shoes. <laughs> um, so that required spending lots of time in the factories, watching, learning, asking lots of questions, um, reading whatever we could get our hands on, and then figuring out how that becomes a process that's simple because it's pretty intimidating to look at a blank page where we've all been there and to be asked, what do you want? Just tell me and I'll make it. So um, trying to figure out how that worked was another thing. And then putting it within the parameters of what is constructionally possible as well was another thing. So it, it took a lot of time to sort of sit and learn about shoes and then figure out what information they needed to receive from us so that they could make the shoe that our customer wanted. And again, that just took a lot of time on the ground to figure out. Mm, I see. And I know that uh, uh, you, got, you guys you guys get like a lot of press in the Australian media. Um, so I've, I've known of Shoes of Prey for a long time and I've, I've read a lot of stories over the years and you guys are, you know, doing some amazing things. So I'm curious around, you You said your office is, is in San, Santa Monica. So can you talk to me? Yeah, like um, I, do you have an office still in Sydney? Like talk to me about location, why you decided to, to, to focus on the US market and, and are you still quite a global brand or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the reason we decided, we, so we don't have an office in Sydney anymore, and um, but I'm back there a lot, and it's still, you know, I mean, <laughs> where, where, and it, we were founded in Australia, and that's a market that we know, love, and spend a lot of time in. So, and it's still a big market for us too. The decision to shift over the headquarters to the US was a tough one from a personal and sentimental point of view, but from a business point of view, it made a lot of sense. So we've raised 25 million US dollars. So that's in my calculation is not going to work fast enough. I'm more about words than numbers um, when it comes to my natural instinct. So um, that's 30 something million in Australian dollars. And we, so a lot of our really strong, good investment connections were here. Um, one of our investors is Nordstrom as well, um, which is like David Jones here in the US. Um, and for the Australians that are listening, and that is, we tested some collaborations with them. We tested some offline and we also still work online with them. And it just, I think one of the key things is that when you're testing such big things and when stuff is moving so quickly, you have got to show up. (laughs) I remember, like, I remember we were emailing with Nordstrom for months and then we, we were like, do you know what? We need to get a meeting with them. So we emailed them and just said, Hey, we're going to be in Seattle. Why don't we catch up? Here are some times. And they said, yes, it's a total lie. We weren't going to be in Seattle at all. We flew specifically to make that meeting happen. (laughs) And, um, I don't think I've ever told them that. So surprise. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> took the meeting and after we spent an hour face to face within four months of that meeting, we had our first door open with them. Then, as I mentioned, they've become investors since that moment. So um, the size of the market over here, of course, as well as 
massive and we were getting good organic traction here. So that's why we made the move. But, you know, I mean, we're out of, we invited, we had 24 of our team in Australia and 22 moved over with us, um, which was incredible. Um, yeah. Wow. So that, a lot of yeah. us are still going back and forward um, as well, just for family and um, also just, yeah, there's still a lot of work that happens in that market. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. How did you logistically do that? Like, um, from a, a HR perspective, do you, do you help people with the relocations and? Yeah, we did. We help people with the flights and, um, and also with having a place when they first got here for a period of time as well. We had like this house that we rented out in Venice beach. It was this big house and we ended up calling it the frat house just because we were all kind of, we all did a little stint in there and I, I staged, I think, for a, a week or two weeks in this little tiny room at the top, which was basically like a glorified walk-in wardrobe that had been built on top of the house. So <laughs> it was really fun. Uh, yeah, it sounds like fun. <laughs> it actually really was. And the cool thing is that so we have this thing in our values and it's not just lip service, it's that life should be what I mean, <laughs> that your work should be life enhancing. And I think that a big part of that is genuinely liking the people that you work with. And moving over and having those experiences together, for sure, knitted us even closer together, which is great. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's a really great reflection of, of the company that you're building and, and the values and the culture if, if, you know, 20 out of, was it 22 have moved across? 24, like, 24, yeah. like that, because that's a big commitment. It's a massive commitment. And I mean, look, part of, part of it too is probably the, um, the things people had going on in their lives as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're at, at that time, like a fairly young group of people. And, you know, now that we're here, people are starting to start families and things like that. Maybe it would have been a different decision for some people if they were already established with, um, you know, a family or other things in Australia. But I think that um, generally, like people were really up for the adventure, which was really cool. We did have a couple of people that um, were in Australia still on the team working from there who couldn't make the move or um, had opted out of the move, which is completely understandable. Um, but yeah, the, unfortunately, yeah, we're all, we're all US-based now. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes you just have to choose. One lesson that I've learned is you either go all remote or all local. It's very difficult to do a mixture of the two. Uh, you know, it's super difficult. So we, we have, when we built our factory, we, so that's in China and it's in this part of China where I think it's like 75 to 80% of the world's shoes for women come from. Like in the same little area that we're in, there's Bali, there's Nine West, there's Zara. There's like, we're all in that same area. It's absolutely phenomenal. Really good Italian food there because there's so many Italians there making shoes and <laughs> leather goods. But um, so we have that office. We've got a team in Manila. We've got our team here. And even though there is a reasonable number of people in each of those places, coordinating globally between those is tough. I I have spent a lot of time sort of doing outward work from the business rather than being in the office over the past few years, just because that's what needed to happen. And I have to say, like, I'm so much happier with my butt in the seat with the team because just mm. you get the feeling, the understanding, you can, you overhear the things that you know, really help you to inform and create better decisions. There's so many things that make more sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it, totally feel it. Um, that's what we're looking towards. We're looking to build out out of Australia, um, our team, the core team. So, you know, it's been um, interesting. A ton of fun though. 
Yeah, well, we we can we can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll sure. share, we we built out we built out so many things. Like we built a checklist of things that people needed to think about in the logistics they needed to think about with accounts and things they needed to shut down in Australia and things they needed to open in the US, how to do it, all that kind of thing. Because it was just sitting over people's heads like a massive, heavy cloud. I could just see it every day walking in the office. So, you know, we tried to do as much as we could to make it a simple thing to do. Mm, yeah. So um, talk to me as well. I'm really curious around, um, you said you've raised, how much was it? Was it was it the 20, 26? 25 mil US. 25 mil US. So, oh, roughly. It's 24.6 to be exact, but, you know. <laughs> gotcha. So you that was a Series A? Um, series B. Series B. So um, can you tell me about that decision? The decision to raise cash? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, an, it's a decision that's unique to each business, and it depends on the vision that you have for the business as well and what you need to do to get there. For Shoes of Prey, Mike, Michael and I were always of the view that we were wanting to build something global and something that was creating a paradigm shift, something that we believed in as well. And I wholeheartedly believe that on-demand manufacturing, customized product is the future of fashion. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's ludicrous the amount of stuff that we produce and then don't know if we're going to sell it. And, you know, so I'm, I'm genuinely committed to this model. And in, in knowing that and the possibility of what this could mean, I think that, um, you know, we bootstrapped the first two and a half years um, and we've done multiple raises over the period of the business. But the reason we decided to raise in the first place was to move faster on something that we could see was working well. And, you know, I mean, for some people, there's there's great businesses that didn't ever do a capital raise. I mean, look at Kogan, for example. I mean, they've IPO'd now, which is amazing. But um, I think, you know, I mean, Kogan didn't take any cash um, and built that from the ground up, which is bloody extraordinary. Um, in our case, uh, we picked a different path. It just depends on the type of business that you're building, um, the path you want to take with it. And for us, raising capital seemed to make sense. Yeah, gotcha. And are you so talk to me about like um, David Jones and Nordstrom and being in there? Because how does that work? Does do people go? Because I, I don't know this space, right? Um, do people like do you, is a whole is wholesale a big part of your play, or is it still B two C and and people shopping online or like because because do people go inside to Nordstrom or DJs and say, hey, um, here's a selection of shoes, and you talk them through it or. Yeah. So actually, so this is a really interesting story because so much of retail at the moment has this kind of, you know, obsession of this sexy thing where we're doing, um, you know, our clicks and you know, clicks to bricks and, um, you know, we need to be on the channel and all of that kind of stuff. But so we've actually decided to close our offline stores and we closed them late last year. And it was a really interesting decision and a tough one when the rest of the world is zigging and you decide to zag. But um, we can get into that in a moment. I can talk to you first about why we did it and what the experience was like. So um, we were hearing in 2013 or 2012, a lot of our customers saying, you know, I want to know what it looks like in real life. And when we dug into that, the insight was that, you know, they wanted to try a shoe on, they weren't comfortable buying it on the internet. They wanted to know what the materials looked and felt like, how the colors of the letters went together and all of this, as we broke it down, really pointed to 
you know, people would just turn up in our office. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> they'd, be like, they'd be like, hi, I'm on holidays. I looked up your address. I just wanted to see a pair of shoes. Um, so, you know, it was all leading to we need a physical presence. Mm-hmm. And so we built the store in David Jones. It was so much fun to build um, <laughs> and stressful but fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the store was made out of things that we make shoes out of. So every surface was made out of a different kind of leather, we even padded the table with the padding in the shoes so that when you put your rested your elbows on the table, you would feel what it was like to put your foot in it. We had iPads so that you would be able to design at the table. And then we had all these boxes full of swatches so that you could pull the letters out and look at them. As you were designing, we had all different shoe styles. You could try on sizing shoes. And, um, but then there was magic to it. So that's all the functional stuff or well, the magic was building it out of shoes, but then we also built sculptures out of shoes. So we wanted to lift you into a space where you stopped thinking about shoes off the shelf mm. and you started to be a bit more creative. Um, we developed a fragrance and a soundtrack for the store as well. So to help pull you out of the fluorescent light pop music environment and get you into a space that's a bit more creative as well. So yeah, that wow. store itself, it, it was super fun. It, it did double its forecasted revenue in the first 12 months, and um, it went through to be a finalist for the World Retail Awards for the world's best store design. And it was up against, like, Karl Lagerfeld for his concept store in Paris <laughs> and Puma for their store in Osaka, and we were like, that is crazy. So the awards ceremony was in Paris and none of us went um, because it's Karl Lagerfeld. Um, but then, you know, like, three o'clock in the morning, phones start glowing. And we find out that someone from the Australian um, Retail Association had picked up the award for us because we'd won World's Best Store Design. Um, So it was just this bloody extraordinary moment. And we um, (laughs) we, we were like, okay, this this is amazing. So then we took that to Nordstrom because, so Nordstrom are really incredible here in the US and they have their DNA in shoes. That's how they started out as a shoe store. It's still a family owned and run business. It's so cool. One of the um, Nordstrom brothers walked past our store and was like, oh, I bet that toe box and that shoe's a bit tight. And we're like, oh, my God, you know, this is a, it's, it's amazing. Their expertise is extraordinary. Um, and so we took the idea to them. We opened stores with them as well. And I have to say offline retail is really interesting and it's really hard. I still believe in it, but I think at the life stage that we're at in the business at the moment, online is actually where our customer is. And the other thing is, I think we had a flaw in our hypothesis. (laughs) So in 2013, she was saying all of those things about wanting to try the shoe on, but also she wasn't generally shopping for shoes online anyway. So this wasn't a shoes of prey problem. It was an industry problem. And fast forward to 2016, she definitely is buying shoes online and is cool with that. So, um, you know, there was kind of, there were a couple of things that shifted for us and the tough things about deciding to close the store, um, stores was that, you know, it's, it's a public test. Um, so kind of helping people to understand why we did it and why we were choosing to close the stores was probably the hardest thing about it from the, on the personal side, you know, there were people impacted in the business as well. So that was tough. Um, the sentimental attachment we had to the stores, of course, but from a pure business perspective made total sense. Yeah, I see. That makes sense. Um, Do you guys do like a Warby Parker kind of style now that like can people try selections or uh, before they – like you can send them some stuff before they try or that just wouldn't work because of postage? So interesting. So we are thinking about it. Those lucky guys over at Warby Parker have a much smaller, lighter product to ship Mm, than we do. That's right. (laughs) 
Yeah, so um, so we haven't done that yet, but it's sort of playing in our minds and maybe some pop-up situations might be the go as well. We're not, not really sure yet, but our returns policy is good. And to be honest, our returns rate is really low. So um, it's it's not too much of a problem just yet, but it's certainly something that's on our radar. You guys are 100% focused online now. What's next? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so much. So, I mean, if I fast forward into the further future, there is a number of things, number of ways the business could go. So, for me, I still want to – I think that we, we have still so much to offer and explore in terms of B2C and the range of shoes and cracking that not really well. But also, too, I mean, one of the big problems that um, massive retailers like, you know, David Jones, Nordstrom, those guys have is – they, they're a one-stop shop, but they're constrained by the amount of inventory they can afford to have sitting out the back. Um, and we can provide an on-demand solution to that. Um, so there's something very, very interesting in the B2C land about that as well. Um, I also, I mean, as to my knowledge, we have the best scalable on-demand manufacturing facility for shoes in the world, for women's shoes. Um, so there's definitely a potential B2B platform play in that as well um, to explore. Not totally sure what it is yet, but there's sort of, you know, there's room to poke around that idea. But also too, I mean, we're in the process of becoming the brand that we are. I mean, for many years we've been how and what brand, which is, you know, what is it? You can design your own shoes. How? We've got this great website, but we've never really talked about why. And more and more, I think, um, Shoes of Prey has been a pioneering space that people don't know about. And in many ways, we've built a business that is, that consumers aren't all that ready for. They don't, it's very intimidating to say, design your own. So um, we're sort of coming into a space of really developing our brand and sharing our fashion credentials and all that sort of thing with people is a way that they can come to understand how customization works for them. Because if I say to you, design your own shoes, that sounds a little bit scary and fun. But if you say to me, oh, I like this shoe, do you have it in my size in red? And I say to you, yeah, absolutely. And do you like the heel height? Because I can change that for you too. I haven't called a customization. I haven't called it design your own, but do you know what? That's exactly what's solving your problem right now. So there's lots of really interesting conversations around how that forms and communicates with customers too. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're right around on demand and um, for sure, like in the future when the way people will shop is, is, you know, putting on like some sort of VR headset and they can see it and they can try it on or virtually. And, you know, that, that is definitely coming. I can see that level of customization and, and just, People are, are, you know, very specific on what they want. Um, I'm really curious around competitors. Have mm-hmm. you had competitors, like, because I don't know this space, have you had competitors sure. come up and, and how do you handle that? Um, has it been problematic? Have they taken market share? Yeah, look, it's it to be frank. So we've had, there were two competitors that um, kind of happened slightly after we started um and we now own both of them um so we didn't buy their full businesses but the parts of their businesses that were valuable to us when they decided not to continue um and so I guess it's it's not problematic and to be honest I would have preferred that they kept going because the more people showing how customization works and goes and how it's relevant and all that sort of stuff, the the more success that we will have as a business as well because it's more people educating in that market. Um, there are some other competitors that are starting to come on the rise, which is really, which is good too. 
but the at the moment we're still um, much further ahead in terms of size and um, progress with the technology and things like that. Um, and I, I think too, though, um, we're starting to see it more and more in other brands. Like, and I think that customization really is ready for the on the cusp of being ready for the mainstream anyway. Um, you know, we're seeing Jimmy Choo and uh, Prada and Salvatore Ferragamo have all executed customization programs within the last two, three years. Um, Gucci is really pushing on it now as well. Um, gosh, you can even get your bag monogrammed at Country Road now. Like it's, you know, this tells me this is heading to the mainstream for sure. So um, competition is definitely a welcome thing. Um, and frankly, I'd like to see more of it. At the moment, when I think about who are our competitors, honestly, it's the women's shoe market as a whole. It's not necessarily anyone else building out um, customization because, to be honest, like its market share will come from the custom from the women's shoe industry, not from other customized shoe options. Mm, that makes sense. So, can you tell me about the the companies that you did acquire? Like, what what pieces did you acquire that were valuable to you? And and yeah, tell me about that and why you decided to do that. We decided to pick up their um, customer databases and uh, the reason we didn't pick up the other parts of their business was because our technology was so much further developed and we were very comfortable with where that was um, and neither of those companies had um, manufacturing capabilities at all so there wasn't anything to acquire there. So for us it was more about, gosh, there, here are these groups of people who understand customising a pair of shoes who don't have anywhere to go now. So um, that's why those parts of those businesses made sense to pick up. Yeah, okay, gotcha. And um, so I'm also curious around... When it comes to uh, shipping and and speed, I, I can see that uh, you guys deliver in two weeks. Um, does it, do you have manufacturing um, in many different parts, or just in China, or and and do you have fulfillments? Like, like how do you? Because because one thing I notice, um, we're starting to play with physical products as well. Founders, people people work with books, physical books and stuff, and and printed magazines, uh, and people were yeah, because we're not digital anymore, and hundred percent digital, and and people like and Amazon is training people to expect things really really fast. How how are you managing that? Yeah, it's pretty full on, hey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Um, I'm really proud of two weeks because like, we started out at 10 weeks um, and it's yeah, wow. amazing that we can make from scratch. We're soon introducing a one-week express option, which I'm super proud of. Um, and to be honest, like the majority of that is shipping time. So we're using third-party providers for that at the moment, um, which I don't think it makes sense for us to build our own distribution network. That is crazy. <laughs> so although I may have to eat my words, nothing's ever impossible. Um, <laughs> But I think if Amazon hasn't even done it, we're okay. Um, so I think that the, yeah, the, the shipping time is pretty important. I think like my ideal scenario in the future is that we're not even a website, that we're just like an interface in your wardrobe and, you know, the wardrobe is connected to your calendar and to the calendar of everyone else that you're meeting with that day and to the weather and to 
you know, has data on what's or data on what's been sitting, what you've been wearing and all that kind of stuff. So when you wake up in the morning, it suggests to you a shoe based on what your day is going to be and the weather and what you might wear that day. And then you print that out in your wardrobe while you go and have a shower. So, you know, that's, that's a, that for me is the kind of the vision of what manufacturing would be in the future. The in-between steps to that are that we'll keep manufacturing where we are at the moment, but I would love as volume increases to set up hubs where we're seeing the highest per capita um, purchases happening so that we can speed up that delivery. Mm, yeah, gotcha. It relies on a couple of pieces of technology. Like it relies on the way componentry is produced, being 3D printed instead and some things like that that we're experimenting with. So, yeah, there's a few things that would need to happen for that to go ahead. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we have to work towards wrapping up, Jody. I've got a couple more questions. Uh, just around leadership, what, what kind of leader are you and, and how do you, I guess, <clears throat> instill – I guess, uh, a great, um, I guess, way to lead your team to get uh, the best result? I love this question. It always cracks me up because I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm a great leader. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably better directed at someone that's not me because it's hard to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. Like that's that's a blind spot. That's the beauty of 360 reviews, right, mm. um, which we do here because, you know, there's, there's plenty of, stuff that I've learned while leading my poor team. Um, they've been very resilient. So um, I think very consultative as a leader, but not afraid to make a decision as well. One of the ways that we did that was by instilling a decision-making process that gets attached to like all the different areas of the business. And um, I'm sure lots of people out there have heard of it. It's called a rapid. So in each, um, and we certainly didn't develop it, we heard about it and thought it was a great idea. So um, someone recommends a particular project, yes. the people who know the technology, know the things that need to go into it, approve it or disapprove it or send it back for more work. Um, P are the people who produce, I are the people who have inputs but not decision-making process, and D is the person who gets the decision. So there's always this chat in the office around who has the D. Um, ah. but, yeah, so in, in doing that, it creates a collaborative but a very definite cycle of how things are going to go down. So that I think that probably connects with or is a, probably one of, a good, one of the good indicators around how we have leadership here in the business. It's pretty flat as well. Um, so we do, it's, you know, we all, no one has an, an office. Everyone kind of sits at open in open desks and we all sort of tap each other on the shoulder when we need stuff. Of course, we don't physically tap each other on the shoulder. We slack each other. Um, and um, that has been a great way to unite project teams across the different offices around the world as well. Also very transparent leadership as well. Um, but transparency we've learned over the course of the business is not simply sharing everything, but putting it into a format that's really digestible. Um, so it's not enough to share numbers and graphs with people. It has to be shared in a way that makes sense to every single person in the company so they can connect that to what they're doing um, and understand how that ratchets up all the way to the brand promise at the top of the pyramid. So, um, yeah, I'd say that it, yeah, it's collaborative, it's transparent, and it's pretty honest, but it's also friendly as well and respectful. Mm. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, when it comes to building your team, what – what what kind of people are you looking for? What qualities are you looking for? Can you tell me more about your values and the culture? Yeah, sure. So, um, so some of the values that we have. So, passionately create happiness. We we know that creating happiness is important, but it's also not something that just comes from free stuff and playing ping pong in the office. Like it it comes from keeping each other accountable, pulling people up when things aren't going right, and 
also make it being really clear with people about what's expected um also treating people like they're wonderful humans and adults they are so a good example of that is we have an unlimited leave policy so you still have to get approval from your manager but we don't count the amount of days that you're taking what we count is are you getting your work done are you leaving at a time that's really critical in the project that you're doing or running or whatever it is yeah so and and then that connects into things like work should be life enhancing so I look for people who are smart but care about what they're doing and are here for a bigger reason so I really like when people turn up and they kind of talking about I love solving a problem I love you know and people who understand the startup land as well and can build structures um, from the ground up rather than sit within structures so as we go on like we, we need to get people with deeper and deeper expertise in various areas but I would I would only hire people who also meet their passion their kind of smart um, and team to figure out a problem criteria as well. Yeah, no, that's something that I'm learning as well. I think like your first 40 to 50 people, they really have to be able, you need to be able to just throw them in the deep end and say, look, I don't know how <laughs> to do this. I need you to get it done or I need you to work it out. And they just yep. kind of just, just go with and run, run with it. Yeah. And Especially in early days. Oh, definitely. And it's curious too, because you hit different stages where those things change and some people don't like the change and go, but you can't take that personally because it's about what they enjoy and the way they like to work. So like a really big turning point for us actually happened around 15 or 20 people where it wasn't just that we all were in sync because we're all sitting in the same room together um, and could just quickly communicate we had to actually create an architecture and write down what our culture was and write down what our brand was and things like that so that we could all be on the same page. And then we had to start writing really proper job descriptions so that people, and, and some people felt really closed in by that because they used to touch lots of things, but we were hiring experts in those areas and they didn't, didn't enjoy it as much anymore. So, um, you know, things roll and change and it's, I mean, I'm, I've still got a ton to learn. We're, we're 220 people now. Um, and you know, all going well, there'll be a lot more. So we'll, I'm looking forward to, and a little bit scared of what that might might all be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Um, last couple last questions, um, best piece of advice, uh, that you've received from, an advisor, mentor uh, in the early days when you're starting out and then um, after that just, uh, yeah, just share the best uh, place people can find out more about uh, your work. Sure. Um, focus, 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 focus. Um, and to be really honest, um, I didn't understand what that meant when I started but boy, do I understand it now. So even in saying that, I don't expect it to mean much um, but what just as much as you can try and take stuff off your plate and just do the thing that is most important right now and then do the next thing and then do the next thing. Um, prioritizing is critical to succeeding and to find out more. So I have a YouTube channel. It's my personal one. So it's just youtube.com forward slash Jodie Fox. And yes, there are some lighthearted videos around styling and stuff like that, but I do talk about stuff that I'm thinking about in the business things that go into a fundraising deck, some of the ways that we first mapped out our um, business plan, how to find co-founders, things like that. So um, that's a place for business stuff uh, to check out the website, www.shoesofprey.com. Um, and yeah, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Just one last question. <laughs> uh, you, you've sparked up yeah. one last question that I have. Of course. Um, so we can wrap. Um, 
One thing I noticed uh, when I, you know, was teeing up this interview maybe oh, a while ago, um, that when I went to your site, it said, um, now please forgive me if I'm wrong, but there was there was uh, there was a strong element of shoes of prey with 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 your with you like um, like kind of personal branding, but I don't see that now with the site anymore. Was that like, um, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I did a collection of shoes. So um, I don't always slather myself all over the website. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I I have done a collection of shoes, and so we every now and then we'll do collections of shoes with people. And it was actually the first. I mean, I I'm in the design background for all of the shoes, but it was the first time that I put my own collection together. Um, and so we work with influencers from time to time and the team were like, Hey, so you should do a collection too. And I was like, that sounds exciting. So that's, that's why I was, um, everywhere and not so much everywhere now. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. I wasn't sure whether you like kind of, um, there was like some sort of positioning play to, to, no, to feel no. like more, you know, connected to you, to, to the founder or you. Um, cause I, I do see yeah. some, you know, companies they they really put the the founder's personal brand at, at the forefront like for me i am quite with founder yes. i am quite because yeah. there has to be a leader driving a movement but yeah no i was just wondering oh good yeah it's kind of it's interesting like and i've had lots of discussions with people about you know your personal brand versus your actual brand and i think the conclusion i've come to is that it's an ecosystem and the truth is that there does have to be a human being driving what you believe in as a brand, because without that, it's really just constructed and not real. Um, so yeah, I think that like, I'm, it's, I'm not afraid to kind of mesh those two up when it's needed, but I'm also, um, not <laughs> egotistical enough to believe that I need to be on every single touch point all of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, look, uh, we'll wrap there, Jody. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. It was uh, great chatting. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.